Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Welcome back to the podcast, or should I welcome myself back to the podcast? You know, I've been gone a while, and one of my favorite sayings is, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? For those of us old enough, you've heard that before in a different context, but nevertheless, where have you gone? Well, for me, life has gotten in the way again. I took an assignment a work assignment, and I've been working quite vigorously, and that has left no time for the podcast. But this weekend, alas, I am making time to make a comeback to the thing I love the most, podcasting with you. And so I know what you're thinking after this bit of a respite. Jeff, where do you stand? Get to the point. Were they dirty or were they not? Those Secret Service agents. Well, hold on. Not so fast. Weren't we supposed to present evidence and let you, the jury, decide? I will say this. I was flabbergasted to listen to Vince Palomar's revelations. They're actually not that complex. In fact, they're like most things related to the JFK assassination. They are right there, somewhat in plain view. And obfuscated by mounds and mounds of data and facts, all commingled, to make it virtually impossible to unravel the truth. But Vince did, and thank goodness. Palomar's revelations about the Secret Service are eye-opening. Clearly, he made one heck of an investment in time, citizen-soldier that he was, and, as I have said before, his analysis was integral to bringing the rather obvious to the surface, so that all of us could see it, not just those with trained eyes. In some ways, the Secret Service story is an absolute proxy for what is the mystery of the JFK assassination. At first, well, how could such a loyal element of the government be involved in such a sinister act, if indeed it was? It's a preposterous thing to even contemplate. It took some 25 or 30 years after the investigation for a Vince Palomara to come onto the scene and devote the effort to looking more deeply into the Secret Service. Sure, there were rumors before all of this, but the systematic investigative effort was absent. As I like to say, that dog was left right there, a lion on the rug. Sure, The Warren Commission was critical of the Secret Service, but obviously they would stop short of digging further into the obvious questions of the involvement by the Secret Service in something more sinister. And wasn't that the obvious question at the time? Well, maybe. Or maybe not. 
The Secret Service enjoyed a pretty stellar reputation, a reputation that was closely protected and, for the most part, highly regarded in this country. And most people would have found it unfathomable in 1963 that a member of the Secret Service would have been involved in a plot to kill the President of the United States. A Praetorian Guard's circumstance was out of the question in the public's mind. The Secret Service is much smaller than the FBI, and the Secret Service has primary responsibility for protecting the President. Essentially, a handful of agents in the White House detail of the Secret Service. Those agents are the ones that have ultimate responsibility for protecting the President and his family. What I am getting to is that this group was small enough and culturally accepting of secrecy that maybe this group, or an important subset, might have been co-opted by more powerful people. And of course, unwittingly, or perhaps wittingly, drawn into the plot. It was possible, I thought, but the facts in the case seemed conflicting to me. What do I mean by that? Conflicting. Well, the Secret Service had done the unspeakable after JFK's death. They had blamed the president's death on the president, saying that it was he who wanted the bubble top to be removed from the limousine the morning of the 22nd. And it was he who made wisecrack remarks which led to the removal of Secret Service men from the footstools on the left and right and front and back of the presidential limousine leaving the president totally exposed without any presence of a human shield to a gunshot. And yes, I will say it again for emphasis, with no human shields anywhere in the vicinity. Vince Palomara, through his research, was the one who convinced us that the key Secret Service agents themselves in charge that day, and including some that were there in person, that day in Dealey Plaza would, years after the fact, deny that the president said anything like that or directed anyone to stand down. In fact, many of those Secret Service agents refuted their own earlier testimony under oath or sworn to statements and said that, indeed, they liked the president and that he was easy to protect and never countermanded their direction on security items. So what gives here? There is just something missing from this story. I mean, if these men really loved the president, and the president had a fondness for them, then how could a circumstance be present where the Secret Service would participate in such a nefarious act? I've gone back and forth and back and forth on this issue. How should I size this thing up? Was it Occam's razor or was it something more? Well, we all know that human relationships are complex. How many times have you seen a married couple, celebrities maybe, or not, maybe someone you know personally, who put on a very good face in public, but who, in fact, have deep-seated problems in their relationship with one another, underneath the covers, so to speak? Well, this was the relationship between the president and Bobby Kennedy and the Secret Service. So much so 
that the Kennedys took action and had a bill introduced in the House which would effectively attempt to take control of who gets to guard and protect the president, effectively signaling that it was no longer going to be the Secret Service. Can you imagine a rather public request for a divorce, so to speak, between the president and the Secret Service? And yet they would all continue to smile at each other in public. But one thing was for sure. Behind the moniker of the Secret Service were deeply personal and unique relationships between the president, his entourage, and the individuals who made up the White House Secret Service detail. And just as much as some of them were violently antithetical to the president, some were aligned, as close as brothers in an Irish Boston neighborhood. All this just added to the confusion of the circumstance. So how could a group of men who genuinely liked the president and professed this to Vince Palomara years later be part of a cover-up or a coup? It just didn't make sense to me. If they were telling Palomara the truth, and they were the hierarchy most likely involved in directing the stand-down, the stand-down which contributed to the president's death. Then, one day, not too long ago, I was watching one of the older video clips that involved the occasional interview of a Secret Service agent involved in the assassination in Dealey Plaza, and the light went on. The Secret Service agent was essentially being interrogated about the veracity of Palomar's earlier questioning of other agents. The response of that particular agent being interviewed was telling. Well, he said... Do you think that some man simply calling up one of my fellow agents on the phone without any prior relationship with him would get a completely thorough and transparent answer from a Secret Service agent charged with secrecy for a very long time? The agent scoffed, and then he exclaimed, Of course the answer is, absolutely not. Well, Maybe the Secret Service agent was right here, and they generally wouldn't be telling Vince Palomar the truth, the whole truth. Or maybe Vince Palomar just got lucky and hit the trifecta. And then every agent told the complete truth to Vince Palomar. <laughs> Chances are that's not true either. Chances are someone lied to Vince Palomar along the way. But we've left that to Vince Palomara to figure out. And he's done a pretty good job of that, I think. But my point here is that it's back to Occam's razor. For me, you have to go back to human nature. Did these men love Kennedy or did they hate Kennedy? And if there were strong feelings registering in the negative, were they acted upon in sinister ways underneath the covers? Vince Palomara and Doug Horn have done a wonderful job of uncovering the incredible set of facts that demonstrate how the Secret Service and their agents were clearly negligent in guarding the president on this trip. And the negligence is so stunning in light of the general risk associated with going to Dallas that it is hard for even an untrained eye not to wonder. Wonder whether there was something more nefarious to it all. 
Indeed, as Palomar's deep analysis on his own has led him to conclude. And we're going to address each of the major items that led Palomar to believe much of what he does today. But today is about something that leads us back to Occam's Razor. You may recall that in one of my opening Secret Service episodes, I mentioned that race, and basically racial tensions, would play a part in this piece of the story. Without much guesswork, you can probably predict that I am about to pivot to the story of Abraham Bolden. Mr. Bolden was the first black Secret Service agent to serve on the White House detail. It seemed a bit early for me to tell the story of Mr. Bolden, but there is a reason for accelerating some of his story and making it the centerpiece of today's episode. Loyalty is a two-way street. Men are loyal to one another when the oath is mutual. The secrecy and loyalty of the Secret Service and its agents have been legendary. But this was a man who happened to have been given a unique opportunity by President Kennedy himself to join the White House detail of the Secret Service as the first black man in America ever with the privilege to do so. And the Secret Service detail at that time was Lily White. And with a good deal of prejudice contained therein, many of them Southern men with culturally Southern biases of the time. Bolden was not only black, but he was unwilling to suppress discussion about what he had witnessed while he was there. And so, the natural prejudice that existed against him was compounded by the serious risk that he represented as a witness to the venal face of some of the Secret Service agents who guarded Kennedy. He saw their distaste and their hatred for the president much of it coalescing around the president's views and actions on civil rights and his perceived softness on communism. His sexual escapades, of which he made many of the Secret Service agents willing assistance in the perpetration, probably didn't help. So like the troubled couple who smiles at each other in public, we are now going to listen to a member of the family who was there, in the room, so to speak, outside of public view, when the unspeakable things were said about the president. And you will hear from Mr. Bolden what, metaphorically, may be described as the true frown on the face of the Secret Service when it comes to how some of them really felt about President Kennedy. And I just said, some of them, not all of them. Surely there were many who really did love the president, and just not all of them. And it only takes a few bad apples, doesn't it, to make rot appear in the barrel. To me, Mr. Bolden's commentary is the missing link. He was never considered an insider at the Secret Service. As the first black man in 1963, it was not to be. Not surprising, of course, but he was a trailblazer, a courageous man under any measure, and when you hear from him directly in this episode, I think you will agree that the measure of his courage will require a taller yardstick, as what he subsequently endured is embarrassing to most of us. How could our country do this to him? 
Nevertheless, by virtue of a chance meeting with President Kennedy, he was given a bird's eye view of some of the most important things of that era, and some that rather directly affected the story surrounding the president's assassination. In 2009, Mr. Bolden, then 74 years of age, would make a stirring presentation at a COPA conference. At age 74, he was slowing down for sure, but his mental acuity and his articulate recall of the history of those events that he was involved with in the early period of the 1960s were a magnificent historical marker standing as a beacon in the fog of this story. Now, some 14 years later, we gather to listen to this episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret, and hear his voice tell a thundering story, a story that I think will fill in the blanks for you, something we have to do before we finish the journey of the Secret Service involvement in the JFK assassination story, a story that we are really just getting started on. Mr. Bolden is 88 now, some 14 years after the time that his COPA conference presentation was recorded. He's alive, but like most 88-year-olds, more feeble. He is the same age as Mr. Paul Landis, the Secret Service agent of more recent fame. During the past 14 years, Mr. Bolden has been the recipient of a presidential pardon, a final restorative gesture by our government, of the terrible injustice for what was most assuredly a framed conviction on a bribery charge. Part of the price Mr. Bolden paid for speaking out about the Secret Service and the Kennedy assassination. Mr. Landis has had a different path in life. He was the Secret Service agent who rode on the right rear of the follow-up car, just a few feet behind the President when the shots rang out. His path in life was, one, mostly filled with silence, as it was for most of the agents involved. And the few things he did say along the way, including his earliest statements about the shots coming from the grassy knoll, are now controversial, as many of them are inconsistent with some of his more recent assertions. Both of these men are 88 years old now. Both have a very different juxtaposition in this passion play, both telling their own stories about an aspect of the assassination and its underpinnings, both very relevant, but for very different reasons. Landis dealing with a very public aspect of an evidential item, and Mr. Bolden dealing with the seedy underbelly of the Secret Service itself. I think, after today, you can better understand that motive might very well have existed within the Secret Service to engage in some of the unthinkable. Now, I'm not saying that it did. I'm just saying that, after today, your mind might very well be made up, that it certainly could have. And there is no doubt that it truly adds some reasoning as to why the Secret Service was so at best, incredibly negligent on that 22nd day of November, 1963, if not downright nefarious. Well, it's time to eat a sandwich 
and listen to the rest of episode 194 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Okay, well, uh, because we extended the last speaker, uh, Randy Benson graciously said that he would sort of give up his time to that and the films that he's got. He's got some excerpts from, he's an do- award-winning documentary uh, filmmaker, and he's been making a film about the researchers called Searchers, the Searchers, and uh, he's going to show some excerpt- excerpts tonight instead uh, during the movie night period at 10 o'clock for people that can be here then. So then I just uh, went down and got uh, our next speaker, who uh, figures into the history of the case, uh, was an FBI agent in Chicago uh, in 1963, and inadvertently got involved in uh, unearthing the Chicago plot to kill Kennedy uh, at the time of the Army-Navy game, and has since written a book, uh, Echoes of Dallas, about his experience of not only doing that, but then getting in trouble for doing that, and uh, especially as one of the first and few black agents in the in the FBI uh, got falsely imprisoned, Abraham Bolden. So he's coming up. Um, I'm going to talk in the next period, and then uh, we'll follow that with Doug Ballantyne on a remote. And um, Ed Haslam's here, I know. Haven't seen John Armstrong, but he's scheduled for 4.30, and then we break for dinner. So come on up, Mr. Bolden. Thank you. Do you, do you want to sit up here? Do you want to sit? And I can uh, I'll, I'll stand. Yes, I'll, I'll stand a little bit. Are we all ready to go? So how is everybody today? I'm doing okay for an old man. Well, first, I need to adjust this mic a little bit. I'm stepping on the bass. That's size 11. Okay, that's that's much better. It's just like dancing with a girl and stepping on her feet. You know, it's sort of awkward feeling. It doesn't hurt you, but it's an awkward feeling for her. I would just like to start off my uh, little talk here with uh, praises due to Almighty God who permitted me to be here today and who is the perfection of all love, harmony, and beauty. I always do that because by His grace I'm here today. Because during my lifetime I have seen a lot of misery. I was raised up in a highly segregated city, East St. Louis, Illinois, born in 1935. I was educated in East St. Louis, Illinois, became quite a musician, and I'm sort of skimming because I don't have too much time. I became quite a trumpet player during my life. They used to call me Little Satchmo. And I couldn't figure out whether it was because I looked like him or played like him. (laughs) 
But they called me Little Satchmo, and I, I was very serious about music. My father demanded that all of his children take music lessons when they reached the age of nine years old because it taught them discipline, taught them to partial out their time. They had to be at a certain particular place at a certain time, and that taught them an inner discipline. That's the way my dad explained it to me as he was whipping me for missing a couple of lessons. So he drove that into me pretty good. Now, I graduated from uh, Lincoln High School. I had a couple of scholarships in music, one to Millican University, another one to Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri. Now, in the meantime, I had two mentors who were very close to the family. And they were law enforcement individuals. One was Leo J. Gooden, who was a deputy sheriff. Another person was a person named Lucius Hogan, who was a East St. Louis uh, detective. And they influenced me because they were always uh, cautioning us guys. They would set us down and talk to us when we would do little acts and things. And, and I, I began to admire them. I, like them because they were uh, policemen and they were upholders of the law. As a matter of fact, when I went off to college, I started at one time to major in law, to be a lawyer. But I had other sisters and brothers who were going to college at the same time. And I, since I had a scholarship, I felt it might be unfair to take from them in order to go to law school. I graduated from Lincoln University cum laude. I was third in the class of 95. I had a 3.9 on a four-point average. And in the process of my graduation, I was offered a job in southern Missouri, Haiti, Missouri. And I turned it down because in the meantime, my wife who passed away in 2005 after 49 years of marriage, uh, she saw an ad in the newspaper. They were looking for a <clears throat> detective at the Pinkman National Detective Agency. And she says, Abe, you know, you've been talking about being a policeman. Why don't you apply for this job? And I said, oh, they're not going to hire a Negro. You, you know how Pinkman is. They're not going to hire a detective. I say, if I want to be a guard, yeah, they might hire me. But not a detective. You have that reputation. She says, well, go on and, and try anyway. So I put on my uh, <clears throat> 39.95 Sears and Roebuck suit and went over there Monday morning, 705 Olive Street. And I walked in the office. A little girl was typing on the typewriter. And there were offices directly behind her. I said, I came to apply for the detective job that you have open. She said, we don't have a job open. I said, yes, you do. And I pulled out this little ad that my wife had insisted that I take, and I showed it to her. She looked up at me and made no bones about it. She said, we're not hiring people like you. And so I, I wasn't going to stand there and fight. So I was reaching for the door when a tall gentleman, graying on the side, 
he entered behind the counter where the secretary was and was, said, what seems to be the problem out here? And she says, he's looking for a job. And I just told him, we don't have one open. He says, yes, we do. He says, give him an application. Have him to fill it out and come see me. And that's what I did. I filled it out. And Mr. Mertz, who was the agent in charge of the division of St. Louis, Michigan, and Ohio around in there, he hired me. And he told me, he says, Abraham, I want you to do a good job. He says, because I'm hiring you, you're the first Negro detective that we hired. And so I want you to do an outstanding job. So I became the first African-American Pinkerton detective in 1956. That's a little known fact among many people. Now, uh, my wife was reading the paper. She was an avid uh, paper reader. But she was always looking out for me. She saw this ad in the paper for uh, Illinois State Policeman and says, well, you're complaining about the pay at Pinkerton. Why don't you apply for this? They pay uh, quite a bit more. So I did, and I became Illinois State Policeman. Hmm. So in the process of being Illinois State Policeman, there was a young, dashing young man, John F. Kennedy. He was coming to Peoria in order to give a speech there on Main Street in the uh, courtyard. <laughs> and I was uh, Illinois Policeman directing traffic near the airport, the Pierre Airport. And I saw this tall, thin Irish man as he was waving and smiling and everybody. And I sound like that guy. I'd seen him on television debating with uh, different people. And I said, I, I really like this guy. I, I, I felt uh, 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 an attachment to him, like many of my people did, because he was saying the things that needed be, to be said at that time, he wanted equality for all Americans, regardless of race, creed, or color. And he was sincere about it. You could see it in his eyes. So I was appointed to escort Fred Backstrom, who was a special agent in charge in the Springfield office, around Peoria when the, pre when the senator was in town. He was making uh, surveys and solving some counterfeit cases. And they told me to escort Baxter around. In that process, I said, Mr. Baxter, do they have any Negro agents in the Secret Service? He says, uh, there might be. He said, I think they may have one in New York, but I'm not sure. He said, if you're interested, make an application. I'll see what I can do. I made an application, and on October 30, 1960, I became a Secret Service agent. And in that avenue, that direction, on April 28, 1961, we had a new president, John F. Kennedy. I was a Secret Service agent stationed in Chicago. 
Now, the agents in Chicago, whenever the president came to town, we were dispatched on certain security posts where the president was going to be speaking. Instead of putting me in a position where I could see the president, they relegated me to one of the uniform officers' position, guarding the restroom in the basement, one that was set aside for the president alone. About 8.30 on April the 28th, 1961, the president was due to come to town. Now, see, the president won Cook County by 8,000 votes, and that's why Kennedy was coming there, to thank Mayor Daley and his Democratic machine for those 8,000 votes told that he won. Now, Kennedy was a pragmatic man, so he knew very well that uh, 7,999 of those votes were dead. But that's the way Cook County ran. So, uh, you, you know, in Chicago we had a motto back then, you know, vote early and vote often. <laughs> you know, and, and so that's the way elections went in Cook County. Now, I'm standing down there by the washroom minding my own business. Had given up seeing the president at all from that perspective. And all of a sudden I heard a big commotion up on the, I could see up the steps. Photographers were running, tripping over each other. <coughs> you know how they do when a dignitary comes in. Cameras flashing and everything. And I looked up at the top of the steps, I was saying, I sure wish I could go up there and see the president. And lo and behold, I see the president is walking down the steps to my location. The first thing that the president wanted to do when the motorcade stopped was use the washroom, and there I stood. <laughs> there I stood. Well, the president walked up to me, and he stopped in front of me. And uh, <clears throat> I didn't know what to run or what. You, you know, it, it, this is some experience. The president of the United States stopped right in front of you and looking you dead in the eye. You wonder what's going on here, Mr. President. But anyway, <laughs> he looked at me and he says, are you a Secret Service agent or are you uh, one of Mayor Daly's finest? I said, I'm a Secret Service agent, Mr. President. And one of the other agents said, he's Agent Bolden. He's stationed here in uh, Chicago. The president looked at me and he smiled, a wonderful smile. When he smiled, everything about him smiled. And you could tell he was a good man in heart. He looked at me and he said, Mr. Bolden. He says, has there ever been an African-American Negro Secret Service agent on the White House detail? looked at him. I was surprised. I said, not to my knowledge, Mr. President. And he says, would you like to be the first? I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. He said, I'll be looking forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. And by golly, on June the 6th of 1961, 
I got orders to report to the White House detail in Washington, D.C., and became the first African American in the history of the United States Secret Service to be appointed to that detail. He gave me that honor. A great man he was. President Kennedy had a heart of gold. I don't know anything about his morality, but I do know that around that White House, he treated everybody the same and demanded that they follow the law so far as he was concerned. Now, the president was hated, though. And much to my chagrin, I found out that some of his bigger detractors were agents that were surrounding him. They were the one who, out of the earshot, they were going whispering around talking about he's a nigger lover. He should be dead. I'm talking about security agents that's supposed to be watching him. And they detested him because of his integration policies. And we loved him for it. President Kennedy was looked upon among the so-called Negroes here in America as a savior. We actually idolized President Kennedy. That was because we saw in him what we hadn't seen in other presidents. And that was an empathy for all mankind. He wanted to level the playing field, and you could just feel it when he talked. There was no trickery in his language. He came right straight down front with the way that he felt that the government should operate. And he was hated for it. So, during my stay at the White House, the longer I stayed there, the more outspoken his agents detailed got until finally one of the supervisors of the Secret Service, the chef, uh, the uh, supervisor, my shift supervisor, Harvey Anderson, we were in Hinesport, Massachusetts. Now here's a man who had a real alcoholic problem. He would report for work drinking, dead drunk, wouldn't even know where he was. Sometimes people would stand on his post in order, you don't know, to cover for him. So we came in from the Kennedy compound after the president had paid me a great compliment by introducing me to several members of his family, his brother Robin, and we stood there and had a conversation. And that just tore Harvey to pieces. He was really a quote unquote what we used to call a redneck. This, this guy was way out there. <clears throat> Harvey told me, as he was finishing about his fourth beer, he looked at me and he said, Bolden, and I said, what? He says, I'm going to tell you something and don't you ever forget it. He says, you're a nigger. You were born a nigger. You were going to die a nigger, and you'll never be anything else but a nigger. So I act like one. I'm talking about the supervisor in the Secret Service. This is a man having responsibilities to carry out the president's orders. 
and to protect and defend the Constitution of these United States of America. And that's what he told me. But I retorted to him, I said, I love you too, Harvey. I love you too. So whatever he meant for me, uh, right back at you. Because I was not going to disgrace the President of the United States, my race, my nation, the American people, by having a physical battle within the Secret Service, within the agent. I was determined not to do that. But I did ask off the detail. I had just seen too much. It was sickening how the agents were misusing government property, talking about the president, talking about Jacqueline Kennedy, all kind of rumors. It, it, it was just ridiculous in how lax that they were in protecting this man. I asked the agent, leading agent, some of them were in, here in Dallas. What do you do in case that shots are fired at the president? Play it by ear. That's, that's what that was the instruction. Play it by ear. They played it by ear in Dallas here too, didn't they? They played it by ear. Because they had no plan. And there were so many enemies within the Secret Service ranks that wanted the president dead. And I'm not afraid to say it. They wanted him dead because why? Because he was screwing up the country by integrating the schools in the South. And there were other things that were going on. We intercepted, the Secret Service had intercepted and had transcripts of conversations between Cuban organizations, right-wingers, people saying, how do you think that would be the best way to kill President Kennedy. And he would say, with a high-powered rifle from a tall building. Listen, we, we, we knew that long before that it, that it happened, that this is what two, at least two organizations were planning to do, was shoot the president from a tall building with a rifle with a scope on it. This is what was, was being discussed. You think that that information was spread around the government agencies? No, the Secret Service sat on those files. They sat on, they made no effort to bring these people to justice, even though they had recorded in Miami these types of conversations. And in Chicago had received a telephone call as late as November the 2nd of 1963. And that telephone call came in to Mr. Maurice G. Martineau, who was the SAIC, and said the president was going to be assassinated when he reached Jackson Street in Chicago, Illinois. That was the message. Many investigative agencies <coughs> have been to Chicago to investigate. They can't find hide no hair of that uh, conversation that was had. They cannot find an investigation. Secret Service destroyed it. So I became the complainer in the Secret Service. I told them on the, no uncertain terms, 
Look, <laughs> your job is to protect the elected president of the United States of America, not John Kennedy, not Eisenhower, not anybody. Your job is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. And no matter what you think of the person that's holding that office, if you tell me that you're not going to do your job, you should resign. I became a constant complainer. And I knew that they were going to shoot at me. But listen, my people, what wouldn't you sacrifice for the freedoms that we have? I saw freedoms in America at stake. It was bigger than the President of the United States. We had people who were preparing to change our government and the way that we change our government by other than a ballot box. And that is not democracy. They were making statements like, if we got rid of President Kennedy, I'm talking about conspirators, then President Johnson is going to make things better for us. He's going to give us more money so we can go into Cuba and do our things. And I, I knew this, but they, they shell me off. I, you're a young agent, I mean, you, you don't really understand this. We haven't lost the president and you're getting all excited about nothing. And then November the 22nd happened. Right away, I went into Mr. Marnall's office and I said, I'll bet you a thousand dollars to nothing those agents were drunk the night before. And they denied it. They said, no, we weren't drinking, we weren't drinking, we weren't drunk. I said, oh yeah, they were drinking because that's their modus operandi. And it finally came out that that's what happened. Well, then my name became like mud. You understand? I knew that my days would be numbered. So when the Warren Commission said, and I'm reading in the newspaper, and I don't see the name of John Hurd in there being investigated, I don't see the name of Escher being investigated or interrogated, I don't, I don't see any of these investigations. In the paper, these people are not being called. People who had threatened the life of the president. And so I said, by golly, I told Agent Cross, when I get to Washington, D.C., I'm going to go before the Warren Commission. I was under the misimpression that they were looking for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I had no idea, as I know today, that the Attorney General, acting Attorney General Kosenbach, had authored a memo which said that Leah Harvey Oswald must be the man and him alone that assassinated the president. I didn't know that that memo exists, so I went to Washington, D.C. on May the 18th, went to Secret Service School. I dialed the White House switchboard. I wanted to talk to J. Lee Rankin, who was the general counsel. And they were waiting for me to make that move. When I made that move, the next day, the Secret Service, when I went to school, 
They went to my hotel room, packed all of my goods up, got me an airport ticket, they inspected McCann and another agent, and flew me into Chicago under a bogus lie that I was needed in Chicago for an investigation. <clears throat> but when they said that we just cracked a counterfeiting plant in Villa Park, and that we need you for the investigation in Villa Park. Huh. I knew they were lying. Not, not unless the counterfeit plant that they bust in need of the janitor or some, something like that out there. No, not in Villa Park. People had left Chicago and established a community in Villa Park to get away from me. And I knew that. So unless they needed a, a floor sweeper, oh, that was nothing for me in Villa Park. So I knew and felt that they were lying. They brought me into Chicago, set me down and kept me. Oh, that sounds good. They, they set me down, kept me going. I got a music background. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> For six hours without charging me with anything. As they did, and finally, Mr. Martineau walked in and he says, we're gonna charge you with soliciting a bride. I say, you know that's ridiculous. He say, you can't prove it. My God, you know when the government uh, is after you, when they want you, they can cook up a case on anybody. And uh, like she said, my mic, can, can you hear me good? Can you hear me now? <laughs> so when they came up with these uh, uh, bogus charges, <laughs> they're after me. Which one of you in here is CIA? <laughs> Just raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but certainly I, I, I knew that I had been set up, but there was not a whole lot that I could do about it. And especially when the testimony had come in in the first trial and the judge called a jury out of the jury room and said that, now in my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, the defendant here is guilty of all counts in the indictment. Hey, and sent them back in and said, now go in and vote on the instructions that I just gave you. I, I knew, you know, this is a railroad on, on fast item. Huh? But that jury didn't find me guilty, and so they gave me another trial. The next trial, my attorney and all of us, everybody who had something to do with the defense was locked out of the court building while the jury deliberate. Well, of course they found me guilty. If that had been the end of it, fine. But I knew that the government was not going to stop with that because they didn't want the public to know about Escher They didn't want them to know about the man, the conspiracy. And they knew that I knew, even though at that time, did you know that people were saying that I was a psycho and I was telling them that 
we had recordings and things of, of, of conversations of men saying that they were going to do exactly what Oswald did. People were shown in me. They, they, they thought that I was having some kind of delusion or something, that I was trying to get back at the government because I was telling them these things. And I was telling them that Joe Noonan, who was investigating the Echeverria case, he came to me and we had a conversation. And he said, Abe, there's something wrong here. He says that the CIA is interfering with my investigation of this case. He didn't say that the FBI, he said the CIA was interfering with his investigation of a plot to assassinate President Kennedy. People looked at me and said, oh man, you're a nut. Can't believe anything like that. And you have people still today don't believe that that happened. So, when they locked me up at Terry Hut, I knew that they were going to spring the master plan sooner or later. That's how the government works. They're going to either declare you insane, you're going to commit suicide, or they're going to beat you down to the earth to where nobody will have any confidence whatsoever in what you say. So they put me in the camp at Springfield, Missouri. Now, I knew the reputation at Springfield, Missouri. See, they ease you in there in the camp. And soon as the publicity dies down, they ease you into the psychiatric section, declare you insane, and hold you for the rest of your life. That's what they had in store for me. So 3 o'clock in the morning, two guards came to mind little bunk and said, Bolden, follow me. I pulled on my trousers, went to put on my shirt. They said, no, that, it's okay, come on, let's go. They walked me through that building. The only thing you could hear was the clicks of the soles of our shoes and the jangling of the keys. They took me over to a section that called 2-1 East. The men in the penitentiary call it the tomb because when you go in there, you just don't come out. They had people who had been sentenced to five years by the court who had been locked, locked up 25 years in 2-1 East because they had been declared insane. And that's what they had in store for me, and I knew it. But I had something in store for them, too. Because my parents had taught me long ago that when you get in trouble and you have a problem that you can't solve, you do the best that you can. And then let God do the rest. And I remembered that. And so I placed my whole faith upon God. I did. That's all that I had. They had taken my shoes from me, my clothes, my, my shoestrings. And I was in there with no one. And death looming over me. Not knowing whether or not I would ever get out of there. 
And they came by and the guards, there were four of them standing at the door. The door came open and they said, medication time. I said, medication time? I'm not on medication. They said, the psychiatrist said, give you this. I said, you have to go through court to do that. You can't just give a person drugs like this. You have to get a court order because I'm refusing. They said, oh, you can refuse all right. But you're going to take it. You're going to either take it like this or we're going to give it to you in your rear end. But he didn't say rear end. So they said, so I uh, took the little cup and I took the drugs. But I knew that I had to defeat this some kind of way because they start you on these little mild drugs and they get heavier and heavier along you to there. And then they got you on Thorazine and then they got you all on all these old fancy names of drugs. And I saw inmates outside of my little window when I would look out there in the lobby, they had to think to breathe. They have them so they have to think to breathe. They're walking around and they Just, and I'm not exaggerating. And these are lost souls. We could very well be one of them. I, I, I didn't feel that I was any better than them. I felt that they were being misused just like they were trying to misuse me. And I had to fight to keep from being in that same condition that my brothers were. And they were my brothers regardless of whether or not they were right or mine. They still were my brothers. They were God's children. And he cares for all of us. So I said, what am I going to do, Lord Almighty? So my people have told me to depend on you. Here I am. Tenth day I was in there. Sometime I didn't know if I was going to come. You can't imagine the pressure that I was under. And seeing these people walking past my door in the little window. And some of them are sitting there, they, they were emotionalists. They just, just, just sat there. And I got to fight to stay out of this condition. So one night I laid down. And uh, I'd said my prayers, all right. And I was looking up at the ceiling. It was, it was dark in the room. We, we couldn't control anything. We couldn't turn lights on and off. Couldn't flush the toilet. We couldn't do anything. All of that was done for us. And I saw a light flicker in the right-hand corner of my room. And my God, I said, hey, I mean, am I going crazy? Is this stuff working? I said, I, I, I know I've I defeated the majority of them, but do I have? And then this little light flickered again. And I said, no. I, I saw it the first time. I'm talking to myself. And all of a sudden, the light became brighter and brighter and brighter like the sun until I had to almost close my eyes in order not to be blind. And it began to die away, and in the middle of this light, 
there was a form, the face of a person. I don't know if they were black or white. It was just a shadow. It could have been either one. He, he may have even been Arab. He could have been a Ramian or, or anybody. But I'm telling you, my people, and believe me, I would not lie about this. Random House said, do you want to put this in a book? I said, sure, I want to put it in a book because it happened. I want to tell the truth. And this image filled my whole body. This is how he communicated. It wasn't as if it was talking aloud, but it asked me questions, and these questions filled my whole inner being. And it said, what is your name? And I told Abraham. I didn't move my lips. We didn't converse like that. And that voice seemed like it was filling up the whole room. And he says, how many children do you have? I don't know if it was a man or a woman. It was a voice that I hadn't heard before and haven't heard since I said three. And you know what the voice said? Fear not. God is with you. And the light dimmered down and went away. I sat up on the side of the bed. I said, oh, my God. They got me, I was saying. I'm going to wrap this up after this because I know you got to get out of here. And uh, I heard the feet of the guards start running. They were running towards my cell. And I laid back on the bunk like I was asleep. And they took that five-cell flashlight and they shined it all around my room. They, they were looking. They didn't go to any other cell. They were looking and they raked it across me and in the corner and over here. I said, oh, they heard something too. But they saw something. I needed to get out that room before they drove me crazy. And the next morning, and I'm going to wrap this up, uh, uh, brother. I'm going to wrap this up. The next morning. I heard bells ringing, guards were running back and forth and back and forth. And I knew I wanted to get out of that cell. And I uh, heard one guard shout and say, there's a fire in the cell next door to Bolden. And the other guard said, it can't be, said, there's nobody in there. That's a vacant cell. And the other guard said, well, it's burning. The whole thing's on fire. And then they said, get Bolden out of there. And the two guards came, and I knocked the door, and I walked out. Praise be to God. He got me out of there. I guess I had about 24 hours left. You know, 24 good hours left. It's a very difficult thing. And I could tell you some other things that happened in the book, but I know he wants to move his program along. And, uh, you, you know, it take me uh, a half an hour just to get warmed up. <laughs> so you'll be hearing from me, so you watch your papers and everything, because, because the United States of America now needs a new moral authority. We need to return back to the God and the principles that first created us. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be sorry and we're going to leave a mess for our children. And time is a wasting. Thank you very much.
<laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Sorry, one more time. Thank you for listening to episode 194 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.